Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this Friday, July 31st. Plenty to get to. Coming up on the program, we are going to take a look at community centers in Vancouver and elsewhere in the region, why some are remaining closed, and some saying there might be another reason above and beyond concerns about the spread of COVID-19. Jason Tetro is going to join us in the second hour of the program today as well. Some new reports raising some concerns about kids going back to school, particularly in high schools, as well as a new report out about an overnight camping trip and how that led to the spread of the coronavirus. That and much, much more coming out are coming up on the program. First, though, once again, the idea of masks and whether or not they should be mandatory, particularly on places like transit, is being questioned. They are saying they're enforcing fares, uh, so I really don't see why they can't enforce masks. Uh, as well as make masks accessible to people who do not have access to them. So that's a woman who has launched a petition, Kelsey Ray, launching a petition asking for TransLink to bring in mandatory masks. Uh, More than 12,000 signatures already on that petition, and they're hoping to get to 15,000. Let's bring in Ben Murphy, a TransLink spokesperson on the line with us now. Ben, thanks so much for being back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know there's been a reluctance to make masks mandatory, but we are seeing it in other jurisdictions, uh, other cities that are making them mandatory on transit in any public spaces. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has said it would be a good idea. Why the reluctance to, to simply say, if you can, you now must wear a mask on transit? Well, our position all along on uh, masks and face coverings, and in particular around making them mandatory, has always been aligned with that of uh, Dr. Henry and public health in terms of where they sat on the issue. And as you'd know, Jill, this has been a, a very long-running piece around masks and face coverings months back. Of course, you know the advice then was that they weren't useful, uh, and now that's changed significantly. And of course, they're uh, recommended, and we recommend customers wear them as well. Uh, but in terms of our position, uh, Dr. Henry yesterday made some, some comments in that she is uh, supportive uh, of a mandatory face covering policy on transit and does think it's a good idea. So we are now actively discussing with Dr. Henry's office exactly what a mandatory face covering policy could look like on TransLink's system. Now, I'm not going to sort of preempt the outcome of that and, and those discussions, but they are ongoing. Uh, and it's definitely one option we are considering because, of course, there's the public health element, which is vitally important in terms of mitigating any potential spread of COVID-19. The other piece that we have to consider too is confidence in the transit system. You know, we want people to step onto a bus, a train, see bus and feel very confident um, that it's going to be a safe experience and it seems uh, masks are going to be a key component of that. Uh, I was on CBUS yesterday and, uh, well, first it felt like being on vacation, being on the CBUS and going to a whole different community, which is an odd thing in itself. But I also noticed that there weren't a lot of people wearing masks and especially with CBUS, with the doors being the way they are and the the entries and exits, there was very little, if any, physical distancing taking place. So especially in a scenario like that, wouldn't it make more sense to say you have to wear a mask? Well, our recommendation is to wear a mask on CBUS and we've launched the Wearing is Caring campaign and we've been uh, putting that message out as best we can. Um, That said, we are at a stage now where we're seeing compliance around about 40% and that's a fairly anecdotal count that we take around the system. Uh, And so that's not high enough. We need to get it 
higher than that. It has been gradually trending up. It was at around 30%, now it's at 40%. Um, but it may be the case that we have to change policy positions in order to get that figure up. And given Dr Henry is now uh, you know, publicly very supportive uh, of this, uh, we are quite enthusiastic to talk more with her office around what a policy could look like. Uh, because there are a lot of, if, if there's to be a mandatory policy, there are a lot of uh, issues to consider. We must never be in a position where we're discriminating against people with disabilities, people with medical conditions, people who aren't able to wear face covering. So we need to be extremely mindful of that. So there are a lot of elements that we'd have to consider, but those discussions are ongoing. Uh, is there an issue as well with enforcement in that TransLink employees don't want to have to be the mask police? Absolutely. Enforcement is a, a key piece. Um, I can't foresee a situation where we would ask our, our frontline uh, bus operators or, or SkyTrain attendants to uh, be mask enforcers in any way. Uh, if you look at a model like Toronto and TTC, they have a mandatory policy which they brought into effect earlier this month. Um, and according to their counts, they've seen compliance rise from 60% up to around 90%. And that's without any enforcement at all. Um, so that is a model that we could look at. That's something we can consider. But um, there are still those uh, sort of legal obstacles. A difference to for our situation here for TransLink is that other jurisdictions which have uh, mandatory policies, they also have either a provincial or a municipal order in place. And I know that might sound a bit like inside baseball, but um, having that order actually gives you some sort of legal uh, authority to be able to do that. So these are some of the questions we just need to work through. Uh, but certainly we are thinking more and more about how we can get that mask figure up from that 40% because it's just not high enough right now. Well, and it does seem like it's a mindset, right? And I think what you just said about the TTC proves that in that to people right now are going into stores where it's mandatory to wear a mask and having no problem putting the mask on going into that place. But then when you get on transit, because it's not mandatory, because it's a recommendation, it's really easy to take the mask off and throw it in your bag or not wear it because it's not mandatory. I think there would be a huge difference if it's mandatory, even if there's not somebody there enforcing it. It's that whole mindset of, of not a recommendation, but a requirement. Yeah, and you could be quite right about that. And certainly the, the Toronto experience would uh, back that up. Now, whether we would see the same impact here in terms of compliance remains to be seen. I mean, every uh, province is different. Every uh, pandemic situation is different. Uh, but one thing we would never do uh, is do this without the support of Dr. Henry and, and public health. And so uh, we need to step through that, make sure that uh, everyone thinks this is a, a good and sensible way to go. And again, uh, you know, I, I think it's just so important that we have to consider those people who can't wear face coverings. We don't want to see any sort of, you know, mask vigilantism on the system or people confronting other customers and things like that. So there are some, some risks and some things you have to work through sensibly to make sure that those sort of things are mitigated as much as possible. So with the health officer, again, making that recommendation that public transit authorities implement a mandatory mask policy, I know you said you didn't want to preempt any decision, but do you have a timeline? If it is going to be a policy change, would it, is the hope that it would be done before the start of school or is there a timeline as, when, as to when you'd like to see a decision on that? Uh, look, I, I wouldn't put a timeline on it at this stage, but we are in um, very active and constant discussions around what this could potentially look like. Uh, we are very mindful that 
you know, we are coming into a period where we'd like to see our, our ridership continue to increase and we'd like people to have confidence in the system. And so it could be the case that a mandatory policy might make people feel more comfortable. Uh, you know, we have received some feedback from some customers that say, look, I just don't feel comfortable stepping onto a bus unless uh, everyone or the vast majority of people are, are wearing a face covering. Uh, and so we can't be ignorant to that feedback. We can't ignore that feedback. You have to sort of think quite deeply about that in, in terms of um, what what that means for our system in terms of bringing back our regular riders because we're still operating at about 40% of pre-COVID levels. So there's much more work to do on that front. Of course, uh, not ignoring the the public health benefits around mask wearing as well, which are quite significant. All right. So we will wait and see what happens next. Ben Murphy, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, a lot of people have been eagerly waiting for their community centre to reopen. We now know that in Vancouver, some programs are set to reopen September 8th. That's happening at 24 community centres in the city. But what is the delay when other centres have opened up? Other programs and such have found some way. Gymnasiums, private gyms have found a way to work around and bring in the COVID-19 protocols. Why is it taking so much longer for community centres? Well, let's bring in Paul Farrow. He is the president of QPBC and joins us on the line now. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, good to talk to you with you, Jill. Uh, What are some of your concerns when it comes to community centres reopening? Well, uh, community centres across British Columbia should be open. Uh, they, they can be open uh, and they can be done and run in a safe, in a safe way. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't matter which community, which city you are in British Columbia, you will find a closed uh, indoor pool, community center, and, and also libraries as well. Libraries are still uh, are sporadically uh, closed across the province. It's unacceptable. Uh, and have you raised these concerns with, uh, in Vancouver, uh, it's the park board for the most part, but with the city councils and those in charge? Uh, I know uh, certainly our, our locals in Vancouver have been working hard uh, in Vancouver. Uh, certainly, uh, as, we, as we stand right now, we, in Vancouver, we have 24 community centers closed, nine indoor pools closed, eight arenas closed. Uh, we look in Surrey, all the recreation centers are closed. Richmond, all closed. Coquitlam, six facilities closed, and so on. Uh, it, is, uh, it is frustrating uh, on belief uh, that private uh, facilities are open, uh, yet uh, the, public, the public facilities being paid for by taxpayers are closed. So the private facilities, for the most part, then, have figured out ways to bring in COVID-19 protocols and safety measures. Uh, Jill, you nailed it. Uh, look, uh, every, any type of centre, anything that opens up, you have to do some, do some work, some hard work. You need to make some operational changes. You need to do a lot of education for the employees, the staff, uh, the community. And you need to do changes in the facility. You, you need to make sure that people can, uh, you need to talk about capacity limits, as well as making sure that social distancing measures are, are in place. That work has to happen. It doesn't matter if it's uh, whatever type of facility that, that needs to happen. And it's just taking too long. Uh, and Vancouver is, uh, is, is, uh, is beyond, uh, is one of the worst in the province. So why do you think it is that the publicly funded community centres are still closed? Well, it's, uh, it's certainly not COVID uh, because uh, Dr. Henry and Provincial Health has allowed uh, these types of facilities to be open. So you can, you can take that off the list. So you have to come down to, to one thing, uh, is, is, the, is the will to open them up 
uh, and and finances. And and it appears that uh, the city of Vancouver is 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 uh, is is not putting the finances required to to open these centers. And you know, it's uh, the provincial government gave local governments across British Columbia some tools to to help in this situation. They said to local governments, hey, you can borrow off your existing reserves, your capital reserves, to, to, to keep things open. You can defer uh, paying the government back the school tax that they collect off property taxes. And they did some other tools to, to allow them to carry debt. I don't think the city of Vancouver, and I would say some of the other cities across British Columbia, are using the tools that, are, that have been handed to them. What about the workers? Are they are they on CERB? Are they getting paid? What are they doing? Well, well no. Uh, this is the frustrating part. In British Columbia, municipal workers, uh, uh, there is uh, about 15,000 uh, members of our union who work and provide frontline services at community centres and libraries are on layoff right now. Do they qualify for any of the, yeah, the funding? They'll be collecting the the the, the, the CERB, of course, but 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 that doesn't that doesn't uh, you know that uh, that 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 has its shortfalls uh, in itself. But it, at the end of the day, those those services where those employees want to be at providing those services, they can't go. And are there any concerns? I mean, do you get the sense from your uh, union members that they want to go back to work, or are there concerns about being exposed to the virus? Or uh, look, uh, Jill, everybody is concerned about the virus, uh, you know, and, and this is the where everybody is on edge, and you know that, and the, the whole mental health side of this is a concern. And we need to be uh, listening again to Dr. Henry. We, we need to be calm and, and on these, these matters. Uh, and safety is first. It doesn't matter where we go, but it can be done. And right now, it's it's in the summer. All the schools are closed. You would think that we we need to find places for for in particular kids to go to community centers and to parks and to and to pools. They, those those are all pretty much closed down. It it just doesn't make any sense. So even as as we get the news that they are the 24 community centers in Vancouver are reopening on September 8th, it's not a full reopen as far as gyms, rinks, uh, indoor pools, things like that. No, no, not not at all. And and you know it's going to be interesting to see the details. Uh, but it's not even August, <laughs> so it, it's it's pretty hard to accept that. Oh, we're going to do it in September. Uh, no, it needs to be open now, and and the and they should be open now. And again, it can be done done very safely. Well, and you would think that they could take a page from, like you said, the private centers and and community centers that have figured out a way to do it. Well, one, well, you know, and this is the the other piece of this is is you know, uh, public centers are 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 there to provide those services, and particularly that this the fee structure. It allows people who may not have a whole lot of money or, or extra money to, to use those, those public facilities. A lot of people just can't afford to go to the, private, to the private centers. All right. Well, Paul, we'll leave it there and hopefully get some more information on uh, the reopening and what exactly that's going to look like. Uh, in the meantime, we will uh, leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, uh, Jill. You have a great weekend. You too. Well, there have been a lot of questions about the back-to-school plan in this province that was unveiled earlier this week and a lot of concerns about this cohorts model, how it's going to work, what is the exposure rate going to be for students, and also what risk 
level is there in schools when we're talking about students, whether they're carrying the virus, spreading the virus? So many questions about this. Jason Tetro is joining us once again, an infectious disease expert, also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, great to have you back on the program. Great to be joining you. Let's start with this idea of students, of children, because there seems to be research that shows a difference between if we're talking about kids in the elementary school grades as opposed to the older kids in high school. What do we know so far about the risk of transmission and spread? Well, I mean, I, I know that people have thought about the fact that maybe kids are not going to spread it, whether they be uh, zero to nine or from 11 to 19. Um, however, uh, more recent studies, including some case studies that have come out of the United States, have shown that it doesn't matter what age you are. Um, if you have the virus and it is uh, essentially growing inside of you, replicating inside of you, even if you're not showing symptoms, you're going to be able to spread that uh, to somebody else. And in one particular study that happened, uh, that came out of Georgia, it was just published today, actually, they showed that the uh, counselors, the adults, ended up actually being more likely to become infected than the children themselves. Uh, so this is uh, the overnight camp uh, in Georgia. So yeah. yeah. So what happened there? Well, essentially, um, it was Georgia. And you might remember that uh, there was an executive order put in place that masks were not going to be mandatory. So what happened is that the camp essentially went forward, and it was supposed to be for several uh, days, maybe even more, uh, like a week. Um, but what ended up happening was when all the kids and the counselors and that showed up, Two days into it, someone showed symptoms. And when that happened, well, they started closing down the, uh, the, the, the camp, and eventually everybody went home. And then they looked at it uh, from sort of a retrospective perspective, and, yeah, a lot of those people ended up actually having the virus. And so what does that tell us then about, because that has been one of the concerns when you talked about, too, that kids can carry the virus, they might not have symptoms. Uh, in this case, like you said, somebody was showing symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but so, so how do you kind of ease the fears of parents or of adults that are going to be working in these scenarios? Basically, you're going to be doing the same thing that NASA and also that the NHL have done, which is to develop your cohort bubbles. And what ends up happening is that if you can maintain that separation between the different cohorts, then what you can do is essentially focus on them individually. So if there is uh, a case that shows up within a particular cohort, you can manage that in a way that will not affect anybody else. And so when you take that perspective, it's compartmentalizing completely, and I totally get that it's going to be difficult, but it can be done. And when you've done that, what will happen is you'll be able to manage all the different types of cases that you're going to see, because there may be an asymptomatic case that shows up as a PCR positive. There may be someone who has um, symptoms that may be COVID-related. Someone else may actually have a rhinovirus or, or the flu. So the fact is that when you do it in this sort of compartmentalized way, you're going to be able to have a better handle on it so you don't lose it. We used to call it community spread. You remember how Dr. Henry used to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Well, we no longer have to worry about that if we can maintain this cohort mentality. And that's what was a part of the BC back to school program as well, or the plan was was the idea of cohorts, which I think a lot of people even compare it to mini schools that we've had in some scenarios too, and that you have that group and you stay in that group. Oh, well, yeah. And even further back, if you want, remember how we used to have individual schools for individual, uh, you know, 
counties or, or municipalities. Um, you know, the little school on the block. That's basically what we're going back to. And one of the reasons that we used to do that was because it would actually help to prevent widespread problems when it came to illnesses. So when you think about it from that perspective, what we can do is essentially make sure that that cohort is designed in such a way that it doesn't interact with other cohorts uh, to any great extent, and that if there are any problems, that cohort is treated individually. The big question is, what are the cohorts going to be made of? Is it going to be grades? Is it going to be geographic location? That is really the big question that we need to be facing now. And is one better than the other? Well, think about it. If you have a class or grade-based cohort, then you have the homeroom mentality, right? Which is really good because we've done this in the past, so it should be fairly simple to incorporate. But then, how are you going to deal with buses? How are you going to deal with the fact that a cluster may happen in one section of Vancouver, but maybe not in others, and and several of those children are going to a particular school? So in that context, you want to be more geographic. And so there has to be some kind of balancing. And it's going to be the epidemiologists and, uh, you know, BCCDC, along with the government, who's going to decide which one is, proposes the least risk and is going to be actually easier to implement. Uh, this, the, there was another story out today as well, and this was citing a study from South Korea. And mm-hmm. it, it found that so children younger than 10 transmit to others much less than adults, but it's not zero risk. There is some mm-hmm. risk, uh, but then finds that children between the t- ages of 10 and 19, they spread the virus just as easily, just as well as adults. Right. And for that, I just want parents who are listening to think about the telephone. How often <laughs> do kids between zero and 10 use the telephone? And then how often do kids from 11 to 19 use the telephone? I mean, it's just as simple as that. Um, when you get older, you get gabbier. When you get gabbier, you tend to use your voice in a much more um, uh, eloquent and sometimes um, entertaining way. And as a result of that, much like singing karaoke, there's a greater chance that you're going to be able to spread that to somebody else. That makes sense. Uh, seems, seems logical. Um, there's also some talk that uh, experts talking about the flu, the good old-fashioned flu, mm-hmm. saying that because of the measures we're taking, there might not even be a flu season, but still making sure, saying, but if you get vaccinated and if you're somebody that gets the flu shot, you should still do that. Don't think that we've just wiped it out. Yeah, and, and I apologize for laughing, but Jill, you know, I've talked with you before. I've talked with everybody at CKNW before during cold and flu season. Everything I've been asking for for those seasons is now in place. It's kind of like a hallelujah moment for me because it means we are going to see less cold. We're going to see less flu. And not because the COVID-19 has become the dominant species. It's because we're actually doing the things we've been trying to get people to do for years. Right. We're being far less disgusting humans. Well, come on. We're all petri plates. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what else? What do you think is the most important then? And again, with looking at the back to school plan, mm-hmm. parents are concerned. And I think it is because this is a whole new model. And, and there, there are going to be scenarios where clearly kids aren't going to be distanced. What, what do you think? How do you ease those concerns that are still there? Okay, well, if you do go through with the, um, the grade cohort, much like the homeroom classes, it's going to be easier for parents to, to sort of understand because um, the children will understand and, and be able to adopt that very quickly. Um, if it becomes a geographic, then unfortunately what's going to happen is that parents are going to have to start talking with their neighbors in order to be able to understand what is happening in their community. And when that happens... Granted, you're going to have a greater community spirit as it goes along, but also it's something that they're not used to. So wait to find out what it is that is going to decide what is a cohort. 
and then talk with your school board, talk with your teachers, your principals, whatever, to make sure that you understand what that cohort is, make sure everybody's on the same page, and then you start moving from there. Because if we are going to go in starting at that stage two, where it's full-time in class cohorts, then everybody has to be on board. And I know that parents are really worried, but I think this is the best option to be able to make sure that everybody stays safe. We are continuing now. Jason Tetro is with us. He is an infectious disease expert, also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Phone lines are open if you have a question about COVID-19 spread, about going back to school, how the cohort model actually works, how it can work, anything on your mind. Give us a call, star 9898 or 604 Two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight, And uh, let's go to the open lines. And Linda is on the line with a question. Good afternoon. Hey, Jill. Hi, Jason. Uh, thanks for your segment, and thanks for taking my question. Um, I am curious what Jason's take is on summer weddings. I've got a couple coming up. Um, they've scaled them down, 30, 40 guests, plus the, the venue staff, and... You know, it's a lot of mixing of bubbles, and uh, I was just wondering what Jason's thoughts were on summer weddings. Uh, yes, well, I mean, weddings will have to be pared down. There's no doubt about that. If you can be outside, that's going to help tremendously, um, because being inside, you're going to have to make sure that you've got lots of ventilation in order to sort of Im- decrease the risk. Um, but the one big thing that may get in the way of being able to prevent infection spread is not the bubbles of people, but the bubbles in the bottle. (laughs) So the fact is, is everybody sort of pays attention to what they're doing, has the masks uh, when necessary, and essentially, you know, follows with all the guidelines. That's great. Um, But if you start to have that um, decision-making hampered or or essentially as a result of some uh, beverage, it it may turn into a, a problem. Right. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks uh, for the phone call. Uh, Phone lines are open if you have a question. Star 9898-604-280-9898. And uh, give us a call if you want to ask Jason a question. Uh, Jason, I wanted to ask you too, because looking even further at the report you were talking about, this was a new, the the study that came out of Georgia from the the overnight camp. Uh, One of the things that I hadn't seen before was the daily, even though they were in cabin cohorts, uh, they weren't requiring people, all the, the campers to wear masks. And they had a variety of activities every day, including daily vigorous singing and cheering. Doesn't that just seem like you're asking to spread this thing? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and I think that's the big problem, right? We know how this thing spreads and talking, singing, well, talking loudly, singing, cheering, all of these things essentially involve you opening your mouth and pushing air out, which is eventually going to spread if you happen to have a virus in it. It doesn't matter if it's COVID or the flu or or common cold. And so the problem is that they went ahead with their regular activity, but they didn't come up with a way of using barrier protection to be able to prevent the spread. And as a result of that, you saw that 44% attack rate. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk as well about contact tracing and the app is being talked about today. Uh, The Prime Minister mentioned it. uh, You can download it here. It's active in Ontario at this point. Do you think that's going to be, uh, is is that going to be an important part of this? It's going to be an interesting one. Um, And the only reason I say that is because, uh, well, let me just ask you, what is a contact to you? 
it's uh, somebody I had uh, I visited or went to dinner with or sat in a restaurant at the next table over, maybe? Exactly. And so in that context, that's where the app comes into play. Because the only way that it's going to register or give you a notice is if you have been within six feet of an individual for a minimum of 15 minutes. And so it's not going to let you know that you were sort of in line at your favorite coffee store or maybe that you were shopping uh, and, and you happened to come across somebody else who happened to be infected. Those things will not pop up. The only way it's going to pop up is if you have that defined close contact, which in Canada is uh, now defined as 15 minutes within six feet of an individual. So do we know the difference, though, of your likelihood of getting the virus in, in that scenario as opposed to walking by somebody in a grocery store who just happened to sneeze? If, well, <laughs> if they happen to sneeze, you're at risk. <laughs> just <laughs> hold your breath and run away. Um, but if, if it's essentially, um, you know, two people who are talking away and they happen to be in the middle of the grocery store in your aisle, um, you know, that's what the mask is for because you're not going to be able to maintain that six-foot distance as you're going around them. And there is the potential that you could come into contact with their droplets. So you put on that barrier protection. So really what's happening is it's just giving you one more advantage um, when it comes to longer-term contacts to be able to be safe. But in terms of the shorter contacts, such as walking by somebody or standing in line, that's really where the barrier protection comes into play. Uh, there are more and more reports as well of people that are planning to travel, be it to another province to visit family or, or, or going to visit family, maybe elderly parents or grandparents, and taking the test, going to get the test to, to show you don't have it. Uh, I did see some concerns raised about that saying, well, there is still the possibility you could get a negative result but still have it. It only tests you in that moment in time. Uh, what do you say to people who are going to get that preemptive test for, for their own comfort level? I think getting the test is a very good idea. Um, when you look at how the test is run, uh, essentially it's really taking um, sort of anything that happens to be there and trying to amplify it. So even if you have just a small amount of virus in you, this test should be able to pick it up. Where it's not going to pick it up is if um, for some reason it's, uh, you know, in a very small area of, of your nasopharyngeal region and it just wasn't swabbed or something along those lines. But again, the best thing to do is to at least get the test, get the results so that you have some kind of confidence. And after you've taken the test, especially if you're traveling, make sure you're wearing your barrier protection and that you stay within your family cohort that has already shown to be negative. And then that way you're not putting yourself at an increased risk of being able to um, acquire this virus through some other means. Have you had one? No, I, I, I haven't. I, just, I only asked because a friend of mine had it. And, and everyone's curious when you see those swabs on TV on what it feels like. Is it very uncomfortable? And she said the nurse did an amazing job of describing it in that it feels like when you eat too much wasabi. That, yes, that, I can understand that. You're, that you're, burning... you're hitting those, those sensors in the back of your yeah. nasopharyngeal region. Um, it, it's funny because humans happen to be the only species other than maybe some uh, other primates that have that there. Um, and what it does is it actually helps us to taste our food. So if you hold your nose and you taste something, you don't really taste it. You just kind of get, you know, sweet, salty, sour, whatever. But then you open your nose and you can, um, you can taste it. Well, the reason is that you've got all these wonderful um, olfactory sensors in the back. And sure enough, if you happen to 
hit those with a cotton swab, you're probably going to feel it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Haley is on the line. Haley, we only have 45 seconds. So if you have a quick question for Jason. Hi, my quick question is around barriers in classrooms, specifically face masks. Mm-hmm. Are they are they a good idea? Uh, Jason, again, you have about 20 seconds to answer. Yeah, I mean, if you can get your kids to adopt face masks and, and it works for them and they're comfortable doing it, then absolutely. It's going to take some time to make them get comfortable with it. I understand that. But the sooner that you start, we still got a month, the better it's going to be. All right, Jason, thanks so much for coming back on the program and have a great weekend. Hey, you too. Take care.